two, one. Hello and welcome folks back to another edition of A Humanistic Perspective. I've got another great episode with another amazing guest. Let me give you a little background on his story. Joey himself, Joey Myers, has played D1 baseball at Fresno State. He's the owner of Hitting Performance Lab. He's the author of Catapult Loading System, and he is a correction movement specialist. Ladies and gentlemen, Joey has so much experience and time in the sports industry, and I look forward to this conversation where we explore his life. Thank you, and welcome on Joey Myers. Joey, thank you for joining us. Chad, thank you for taking the time, brother. Yeah, of course, as always. So I like to start the show by going back to your childhood. I would love to let you know, explore the dynamic in your household, explore sports in your life, explore being raised in the education system. What did that sort of do for you? And what did that bring out for you in your life? Well, I think for, for some out there, I think the education system now versus then is, is quite a bit different. I mean, I'm 41 and that you're talking about 30 or so years ago. So I my kindergarten through, well, preschool through about fourth grade, I was going to a school that was in, in our side of town, not, not the best side of town. I loved it, but it wasn't the best. And the reason I went there, my parents lived in another, in another side of town, but they both worked. Hmm. And we had a babysitter that lived over next to my elementary school, which was called Slater Elementary School. So I ended up going there because I went to a babysitter and my brother was about six and a half years younger was going to the same babysitter. And then he ended up going to the school in the fifth grade that I went to, which was Malik, which was a little bit more in my parents' district where, you know, where we, where we lived. And the the reason why fifth grade, we changed schools was because now I could ride a bike to school Hmm. and I didn't have to be over there with the babysitter. And you ask about how that shaped and maybe molded me was I got to grow up in a school, which was very much some people maybe, I don't want to refer to it as a ghetto, but it was kind of that way. So I got to experience that side of, of society. And I developed a lot of good friends, a lot of good people that came out of that school. Mm-hmm. I have one, uh, one uh, story. And I think it was the second grade we were playing soccer and I was always really good at sports. Okay. And even in the second grade, and we had at that time, we had all all the, the upper graders and lower graders all out at recess at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we were playing soccer. And I think I juked this guy. I think he was a fourth grader, fifth grader. And it's funny. My name's Joey. His name is, was Noe, Noe, (laughs) Noe Joey, right? Fourth, fifth grader, big dude. And he didn't like that. I juked him or I kicked the ball by him. He was goalie. I can't remember the exact scenario. And he comes over and just hits me right in the stomach. (laughs) Second grader. I had no clue about all this stuff, you know? (laughs) And he freaking slams me in the stomach. And so, you know, I remember Noe. So I tell my wife about Noe and, and uh, wow. so anytime that name, any kind of word sounds like Noe, she, she says Noe. Yeah. So, <laughs> so then I went to a school uh, to round this off, round the story yeah. off. Then I went to school fifth and sixth grade. That was completely, completely opposite. It was most, most of the rich kids. And mm. I, I got to that school and I was like, these kids are freaking soft. You know, now, did you at the time, did you understand the dynamic of maybe a more adversity driven school versus a school that maybe does have a little more of the privilege there? Could you tell at the time (laughs) that you were experiencing those different dichotomies? I didn't know until I got to the fifth and sixth grade school. (laughs) I had no clue. And it it was crazy because, you know, again, sports, I was really good at sports and a lot of those more, again, 
what I, th- my, my definition of privilege is money, right? Money gives you more access to resources and things like that. Cause there were, there were kids in fifth and sixth grade that were all, I mean, it was diverse background of, of racial and, and gender and the whole thing. Um, but it was money. It was a difference between money versus no money. And mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't until I got thrown into that, that heaping pile that I thought at the time was a heaping pile. Now, now I've made good friends too there, you know, in fifth, fifth and sixth grade. So I have a good, well-rounded experience between, the the people in the lower socioeconomic maybe lower middle class to middle class to upper middle class you know now at the same time do you have how is sports being presented to you is it just in the school system do your parents are they avid fans are they coaches themselves how do you sort of get introduced to sports and how did you understand or come to like sports (laughs) good question chad yeah so sports was my my mom was she played softball and did cheerleading in high school and my dad was, and he'll say this, he was a self-proclaimed nerd, had the pocket protector and everything. Uh, and he was more of a nerd of cars. He loves cars, loved Bad drag ass. racing cars and all that kind of stuff. But he he wore the the button down shirt, the short sleeves, the, the whole office space look, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so what it didn't really grow up in a, in a very athletic family per se, my mom, again, she played some sports, but she wasn't pushing or anything like that. So they just put us in sports, soccer and baseball growing up that they just thought, Hey, we just needed something to do in the fall. And we needed something to do in the spring. And there were numerous nights in that, in the, the K through fourth grade, or I think I started soccer probably, probably about kindergarten or first grade or something like that. I was seven, seven years old. And again, the difference, right, between between a program that they barely have any money to a program that has money. And there were nights, again, think about those listening. This this is the late 80s. Right. And oftentimes we'd finish practice at night for soccer because it got dark late or dark early and I'd be left out there on the on the street corner. And the coach would say, stand (laughs) under the light and wait for your parents to come. So no kidding. Wouldn't do that nowadays, but that again, that's uh, the difference. And, and I love my coach, and I didn't know this at the time. Yeah, how unsafe that probably was. But uh, you know, my parents always bring that story up, and it just it's just interesting uh, to see the the differences. Sure. So you grew up in California, correct? Yeah. So what was the dynamic like in California in the 80s? I know skate culture was huge. What were mm-hmm. maybe some of the outside catalysts that were affecting your being a part of your life? Yeah. So I love sports, but I also loved, and it wasn't something that my parents were into was surfing, surfing and skating. So it was eighties. Yeah. Skating, uh, skateboarding and skate roller skating, roller blading. (laughs) It was kind of, you know, we, when we'd go, there was a place called roller town that was all roller skating and you could, your class would go for a fun day, like on a Friday, it'd be a field trip and you'd go and they'd have the, the, the skating rink and you put the roller skates on and all that. And so I grew up in that side, but then in the early nineties, it started to shift into the roller blading. And that's, that's where things got, got really fun. So we did a lot of, on our block, we probably had six to 10 kids on the block. It was really cool. We grew up with a lot of kids about our age, you know, a little older, a little younger and in and, sure. and my age. And so we did the, the roller blading. We did a lot of the like field hockey. We played whatever sport was in season at the time we do, mm-hmm. we'd play football in the, in the, in the fall, we would do wiffle ball in the spring. We would do all that kind of stuff, but skateboarding, we did that too. We did a little of that. We did uh, the, the one thing I wish I would have done more of, but again, my parents weren't really into it. They didn't know how to do it with surfing. I mm-hmm. loved watching hang 10. was it reading the book, uh, some of the magazines back then hang 10 or something yep. like that. I love shifting through those books and martial arts books like black belt magazine oh. and stuff. 
Yes. Oh yeah. That's the best joint growing up, man. Like I can so remember those moments and like just being such a, such drawn to, I had a similar upbringing in the fact that like all the kids just sort of, you try every sport and it's just to keep you busy and keep them going. When I want to explore a little bit, like seventh, eighth grade high school, I noticed that kids have to sort of start to break down their time. They sort of pick a discipline or they find the sport that's theirs. How was that experience for you? And, and is this the point in time when you started to take a liking to baseball as your primary athletic activity? Yeah, good question. I, I think I love baseball the whole time. I liked playing soccer, but I didn't love it. Mm. And in that in that transition period, and, and it's funny because I was still doing soccer in the fall, seventh, eighth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. I was doing, still doing soccer. I think I stopped doing soccer my the fall of my sophomore year in high school. So I, I played all the way through from seven years old all the way through about freshman sophomore year in high school. Uh, and baseball was all the time. And, and if I was in even during soccer season, I was practicing baseball. We were playing wiffle ball in the street, hitting balls around and stuff like that. But I also took martial arts for three years and it was a mixed martial art before mixed martial arts. Sure. My sensei taught us a lot of, of everything. It was just more of survival and, and whatnot. And I had, I was doing a lot of different things. That was also, I think around the time, the uh, bulls, the Chicago bulls and Michael Jordan were crushing it. And I wasn't a big ba basketball fan before that until I, a friend of mine on the block, he was a little older, a couple of years older, loved Michael Jordan, had posters of him up. And that's the only reason I knew about him and the Bulls. And I loved watching Michael mm -hmm. Jordan and the Bulls during that time, the 90, you know, night from 94, 92, the dream team all the way through until about 98, 99, when I think was the last last the last one that they ran they uh they won and i think jordan had actually retired um and went to baseball or whatever or came back from baseball yeah, he literally did yeah um but it but those were and i played basketball we had some friends that had basketball hoops on the block so we played basketball did stuff like that um but that seventh eighth grade seventh eighth grade year in the middle was really i i didn't I wasn't too fond of that time. I felt like that transi transition, the testosterone and the acne and the whole thing, it was just so awkward, even though probably made it easier that I was a, a semi-decent athlete and people weren't picking on me. I didn't have my dad, like my dad with the pocket protector and the button down shirt. I wasn't doing that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but it was just the awkwardness of that whole thing. And girls, you start to start to like they girls more than friends. Yeah. yeah. And it was just so awkward and nobody teaches you how to act around girls, like girls that you want to be a little bit more than a friend with. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, it was just, it was an awkward, but we, we filled our time. Like you said, you fill your time with stuff. If I was in high school with you, how would you describe yourself? What was sort of your group? What was your energy? Like, uh, give, give me, give me a little mm -hmm. insight. Maybe let me, let me understand a little bit of high school, Joey. Shoot. My kids will love this interview. And when they get a little older, <laughs> they'll right. get to get a flashback of how dad was when he was, when he was younger. Yeah. So high school for us, we had a very diverse group. We had, I, I work with hitters, right? Baseball, softball hitters. And I asked them mostly boys. I have a few girls sprinkled in softball girls. And I asked my boys, I say, I asked them, do you have like girl friends, not girlfriend, but girlfriends right. too, running around with you guys and your posses and stuff. And a majority of them say no. And that's really weird to me because it wasn't until about that fifth, fifth sixth grade when, when I moved to that new school that we, a lot of the girls that played softball and soccer and stuff, we ended up meshing together. And mm -hmm. our group was very, probably pretty even, maybe even a little bit more weighted on the girl side. We had a lot of girlfriends and we had uh, guys and we had all races, the whole thing. I mean, we were, we were a pretty diverse group and I, I felt like 
it was good. We had jocks. We had, we were pretty, pretty inclusive when it came to the different categories of, of different, you know, the, the goths, the jocks, the, yeah. all of them, mostly jocks. I mean, most of us played sports, but I had friends that were nerds. I had friends, maybe they didn't run around with our group, but I was always open to having conversations with a lot so of you different were a popular people. guy. Yeah. You were very extroverted tendency, yeah. willing to talk to anyone. Yeah. Now I, I noticed too, for me, even my discipline was more music in high school. I got very, mm -hmm. very focused in that, but even being a musician, when I went to high school versus like when my parents went to high school, the ability of technique and the advancement of technology have mm -hmm. just propelled the ability of, of a musician at a young age. What was that looking like for you as an athlete? Was there technicians? Was there coaches? Was there physical therapists in your school mm -hmm. system? How detailed was the technical aspect of playing the sport versus, I guess, compared to the kids nowadays? Yeah, another good question. I think at that time, when I was growing up, that was the birth of the tech, tech, not technology, but the tech phase where you have hitting instructors and you have coaches outside of who's actually coaching your team that can you can pay to to work with you. And I first, my first hitting lesson, I think was 10 or 11 years old. Wow. And it was just a couple of them. And then it wasn't until about 12 years old, I started to do my own research. I started to dig in, started to read books, watch different DVDs, videos. Those started to get, get really big. Again, we didn't have access to the internet back then. It wasn't until about the mid nineties, uh, 94, 95 when we started chat rooms and stuff, but we didn't have the internet isn't the information source that it is right. now back then. Right. It was just more of meeting people and whatnot. So the, I look back now at how, how much access we have to people. I can go mm. and reach out to a guy, a gentleman up in Canada, Dr. Serge Grakovetsky, who is a physicist and electrical engineer. And uh, one of the reasons why I was interested in his work is he wrote a book called The Spinal Engine, which is mm. in our system, our hitting system. We That's the basis of our system is the spinal engine. So the no combination kidding. of the shoulders, spine, and the pelvis. So I was able to reach out to this guy probably around 2014 or 15, I sent him an email. He sent me an email back. He responded. I had a couple of questions and he, he responded back. And I just think how in the heck, if I was growing up to have access to people like that, oh my gosh, it would have changed everything. hundred percent. Do you think, uh, before we move on and get out of sort of high school, I have sort of two questions here. One, how do you think like I noticed now we worry about brain injuries, CT, things mm -hmm. like that for athletes. Mm -hmm. Was how what was a the concern level like when you were growing up? And B, do you think in your personal experience there were some events or some childhood like brain injuries that could have happened through athletics that maybe mm -hmm. affect you now in your 40s? Yeah. So I didn't play, you know, I stayed away from football. I didn't really do the skiing stuff. Uh, a lot of my friends broke knees and, mm -hmm. and things like that and ran into things and whatnot. My football friends had, you know, how, how much head injury stuff that they went into. Right. And I really weren't aware of that. I think the biggest thing at the time until it, until the, the Will Smith movie came out the, where I think it's the, is it CT or what's the, um, I, I know traumatic brain about. injury, traumatic brain, whatever, whatever they call it, but the, where they get the blood clots in the brain because of the, the impact. Right. So yeah. we really football, that wasn't a big thing at that time. It was more of riding bikes and making sure you wore helmets. So it was back then was the seatbelts too. wear your seatbelt, wear your seatbelt. That was a lot of the public service announcements. Right. And then the other was your, wear your helmets on your bike. And at the time we were, we didn't want to wear our helmets. We, we weren't wearing our helmets. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, you got to wear your helmet because you, your head. And so we were young, we we're dumb. And 
we didn't we didn't know what the the risk was and fast forward uh, back in 20 i think one of our cousins she passed away at 21 22 she was riding a longboard skateboard in yosemite and she was going downhill and she tripped and fell oh. and hit her head and i don't know if she uh, i don't Oh, she did have, I think she did have a helmet on, uh, or some, or maybe she didn't, but I mean, it was, it, it was, it was, it's never good when you lose your family member, but it was good because it was, it was lights out. Like there was no suffering. There was none of that, but sure. that now is where I take into our kids. So when we, when they ride a bike, when they ride a scooter something that they're going high speed, we say, put that helmet on. And I, I just tell them the story of our cousin. So now, how, you know, old are, how old are your kids? Are they at the age where they're starting to play sports at a very competitive level? Uh, not very competitive yet, but I mean, at, at any age, it's super competitive for whatever reason. Some of these mm. parents get cr crazy at five years old, you know, they, <laughs> I feel like sometimes the parents can be even more crazy than the children are at the sport. They're the worst. Yeah. They're the worst. They could be the worst. Yeah. Uh, but we have a five-year-old daughter who just went into kindergarten this year and we have a, an eight-year-old son who is nice. in third grade. So he's getting pretty competitive. He's been doing parkour ninja warrior type stuff. This since uh, 2020, we were doing gymnastics stuff with both kids for a couple of years. And then the, where, where we live in, in Fresno, that got shut down a little bit more. And so there's a place in Clovis, there's a city that's just like North of Fresno that mm -hmm. they're, they were a little bit more open and stuff. Yeah. And so this place was in Clovis. So we started going to parkour and wow. he's love, my son loves it. So we're just waiting for an okay. opening for the, the girl, my girl to go, but he's been doing parkour for a little over a year now. And he's been playing baseball and not because of me, you know, he, he actually right. likes it, which is cool. I'm not pushing him. And he's, he's doing pretty well. He's I was gonna pitching, ask about you know, we're hitting, dynamic. doing all that kind of stuff. Um, with your kids, is it like, if they have an activity that inspires them, let their creativity go and do it. Or are you like, I want you to be doing this no. specifically or like, yeah. How is that dynamic as a parent for you? Yeah, that that's a tough thing. And like you said, in our youth, you just kind of let them do different things and see mm -hmm. what catches fire. And yeah. one of the things we want to do that both my wife's family and my family, we, we aren't very musically inclined. Mm -hmm. I, at one point wanted to play drums when I was at the old school, the kindergarten yeah. to fourth, fourth grade school. Yeah. Your cardio and, would have done that well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And it was the one thing I didn't like about showing up early to school. It was like a half hour, hour earlier than normal. Uh, I was just getting up early. I just didn't like that. I wanted to play the drums, but it just, it just didn't work out for me. I didn't, I didn't do it. I probably would have been pretty good at it if I would have, if I would have stuck with it. But my son is very odd audio learner very much. And, and he listens and he's one of the ones I found between him and my daughter, my daughter, I could yell at her and she'll just wink at me and, and, <laughs> you know, type of thing. She don't care. But my son, if I raise my voice, just a couple decibels, his, his rabbit ears go up. You know, he listens, he listens a little bit more. So I have to be careful raising my voice to him. If I do, it, it means I mean business, right? right? But I have to be careful on that. So I would love to get him involved in, in mu music. Cause I think he would be pretty good. I think he'd have a pretty good ear for picking it up pretty quickly. A hundred percent. And even if he didn't continue with it, the, like the synapsal remembrance of mm -hmm. our brains, when we're multitasking with music that mm -hmm. I'm sure would translate perfectly into his sports and be oh, very, yeah. very physical, very kinesthetic in the activity. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to your high school time. So how do mm -hmm. you pick Fresno state is your objective to get to college and play sports is your objective. I want to be a doctor. What are you sort of thinking in your head as a high schooler with the existential, where's my life as adult going, where are you right. at with that? Yeah. 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 Good question. Yeah. My, and probably my strength and my weakness was to play 
in college sports. I mean, I wanted to play major league baseball, but wow. also it was a li- little bit, a little bit into the reality of, well, maybe that could happen, maybe not, but I know I can get a scholarship to play, to play college ball. So the question was, I wasn't being as highly recruited as some of my, my fellow teammates, although I was doing pretty good, but I wasn't a big guy. I wasn't. And you know, what was your five. position in senior year? So I played outfield center field was my biggest one. So I okay. played all the outfit positions in college, but in high school, it was mostly center. I just loved the open field. I loved the, to be able to cover both sides, be able to back up my right fielder, my left fielder, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I love just the open range of that. Um, but I wasn't highly as highly recruited. So I almost, cause my dad was air force. He went to, he was in Vietnam for uh, one year in 69 off the coast of Cameron Bay. And then he was wow. in the air guard for probably, I mean, he was in the military act, uh, not active duty. He was air guard. So he wasn't traveling all over the place. So we weren't, you know, the, the military brats all over the United well, thank States you for his service. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. He, I mean, he did it. He, uh, uh, but he put, he spent about 40 years in, in being active in the military. And then he spent about 10 years as a civilian working for the army guard. Um, so the, um, um, I don't know where I was going with that one. Were you, so you were potentially going to enlist. So, so yeah, exactly. So I was looking to play ball for air, air force, uh, what do you call air force, uh, university? What's it? Air Air force Academy. I was looking at the, uh, West point possibly. I didn't even know they Um, had sport teams. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about West Point. I think West Point does, but they're, they're Navy schools, uh, cadet schools that you can, you can play sports at. I know Air Force does. I mean, they play football and they got all kinds of other sports. So that was one of the things I was thinking of is I could always play a sport for military. So I can go in. My dad always said, don't go, don't go. If you're going to go in the military, don't go in out of high school. Cause you're going to be a grunt. He said, go in, get your, get your college degree. And then you come out as an officer. So you're going to have, you're not going to be quite on the front lines. You're going to be back a little bit. And I probably would have gone into Intel or something like that. Um, But that was, that was kind of my plan B. And then I was lucky because I had a couple coaches in high school that were really recruiting me that spring of my senior year. And I had like four, I think four universities that were on me. One was Fresno state, which I ended up signing with. And then we had university of Nevada, Reno, we had um, Loyola Marymount, which is down in Santa Barbara area, I think, mm. and San Francisco University. Um, coaches were awesome at, at all of those spots, but I, I chose to be close to home just because, one, I'd never lived on my own, and two, <laughs> the crowds were big at Fresno State. It was between 1,500 to 3,000 people coming to your games, wow. and you know, University of San Francisco, that wasn't the case. I showed up at their field. It was beautiful. I love San Francisco. Uh, at the time, uh, but I looked at their, they had these metal bleacher seats that were tiny. And I was like, wait, how many people can come to this game? <laughs> so right. we weren't going to have a lot of people coming to those games. And I wanted to be in an environment that was electric and on, yep. especially and does Fred, that change Friday night games. things for an athlete when it's packed stadium like that? Does oh that yeah. Just like bring out that like next level of adrenaline in them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's so much different playing in a, in a stadium where you got a lot of people. And then even the heckling one of the summer or we were playing in, <laughs> We were playing in Rice, Rice University in Texas, yep. and I was playing center field. And there were a couple. They had some of those metal bleacher seats, but out out in 
I think it was, uh, was that right center field, I think, or left center field. Okay. And, and they were, they were drinking and they were talking trash and, uh, you know, just talking, talking trash out there. So, you know, I, I, I do well, I do well in that kind of environment. I, I, I like when people talk trash and, um, you know, I'll give it back if I need to. And, uh, in another, another, uh, story, probably even funnier. And I couldn't have done this during the season. Cause I would have gotten in a big trouble. Uh, sure. but in the summer we were playing summer semi-pro where we, it's all wood bat leagues and it's all college guys from, from D one, D two and AI, you know, they all come and we play each other during the summer and we were playing in Santa Maria. So we were playing the Santa Maria, the team just like us, but in Santa Maria, it's a beautiful area, beautiful, beautiful, uh, the climate, everything was awesome. I had the same kind of thing, like in rice where these guys are getting drunk and they're talking trash. And, mm-hmm. and I had these red cleats on because it was the only cleats that I was given from Fresno state. So these red cleats on, they kept calling me Dorothy from the wizard of Oz. <laughs> hey, Dorothy, Hey, Dorothy, you know? Oh and so at, at the end of the game, it was awesome because I got the last out the, they hit a fly ball to me in center and I had already planned this. Uh, I was going to do it anyway, but it was just great that all the attention was right on me at the end. So I uh, got a fly ball, not, not super deep, but enough to where I was close enough to these guys and they could see me. I mean, they're, 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 they can see me. They're high up enough. So I caught the ball. I threw it in and these guys are, you know, talking trash or, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, and then I, I uh, started unbuckling. I stood up, I started unbuckling my belt and, and I can hear them behind me going, what is he doing? What is he doing? And then I just pulled it all down and just mooned him, mooned him right there. And they go, oh, and you hear, <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening fantastic. to him. Wait, what year of college is this for you? So this is my, I think this is my junior year in college, <laughs> like going into my senior year. Yeah. What did your coach say when you went back to the bench? Oh, they loved it because the, the coaches during summer ball, they're, they're just like us. They're probably five, 10 years older than us. They're young. Okay. okay. And uh, like, just give you an idea. One of the coaches, he would always say, I'm sweating bullets right now. We just get to the game on a Sunday morning game or whatever. And the guys we went out the night before mm-hmm. and, the, and this coach would say, I'm, I'm sweating bullets, the silver bullet. He'd say so that kind of gives you an idea of what these coaches are doing, right? And how they are. Sure, so sure. so they they gave me a high five when I came in, but I could not get away with that at Fresno State. I mean, they would have yeah. they would have smashed me. Oh not, sure, not professional at all. But yeah, during wanna, the summer. So I want to go into your college, your freshman through senior year from two perspectives. A, the classroom. How are you developing? How do you figure out that you want to like understand more of the science and the the biomechanics that create the industry that you're in and then Mm -hmm. two from the sports side just like you shared with that one story how was Mm -hmm. your career as an a d1 athlete and Mm -hmm. what do you remember of it like do you reminisce about it is it one of the best memories you have sort of maybe Mm -hmm. those two perspectives on your college experience yeah, no, it, it was so fun. And it was like getting dumped into so being in a fishbowl that you, you know, everything in there, you know, where everything's placed and then getting dumped into a brand new one where you yeah. don't know where everything is and everything's placed. And I was lucky. I had probably three, four, just a handful of guys that I went to that we came in as freshmen together cool. from my high school and then other high schools that we played against that we became really, really good friends. So it was nice to go in. It wasn't like I came from Fresno, California and went out to Maine or went out to Texas or whatever. Right. Where I would have known nobody. We had a guy come in from Australia. We called wow. him Ozzy. You know, <laughs> he, he, th- he threw sidearm and, and submarine. And okay. um, I couldn't imagine coming in from a whole other country and not knowing anybody, anything or, or whatnot. So I couldn't imagine that and living on your own and, and doing life on your own. Um, so that was, that was a little different was going in freshman year, having some of those friends and then a whole new system, because what happens in high school for athletes is your practices. We were always first to the field, a friend, a good, really good friend of mine still today. 
we'd always be first to the field working on our stuff. And then we do our practice. And then sometimes we'd stay after and, and work a little bit more. So your practices in high school tend to be at least your baseball ones about two and a half hours or so. Okay. Or so your official practices, two to two and a half. So we were probably three, three and a half hours, what we were spending out there, okay. him and I, uh, fast forward to college. Now those practices are, we'd start at two 30. We'd have a pre-practice at two 30, but you got to be there at two to get dressed and ready. And you got to set up and everybody's got field duties that you got to get everything set up for practice. And then we wouldn't be done until a lot of times six, six 30. So you're talking wow. four hour practices. And then you'd go into the weight room three times a week, right after practice. So if it's six or six 30, you're working out for another hour, hour and a half. So you're talking almost six hour practices now in college that makes it that makes it really tough so the if you want to work on more early and later i mean you're there even longer it becomes like a, right. a seven eight hour deal so that my freshman year was really tough uh you know i'm i'm pretty good with school i i got a i think 4.06 grade point average i wasn't i'm not right. really good on in high school uh in so i was like three what was i in college 3.4 3.5 something like sure, that which is still high which is still good. Um, but it's, you know, I'm balancing school and I'm balancing baseball and, and it's right. a lot of those practice days. And that's the fall. That's, that's all fall. And then now in the spring, now you're traveling. Now you're going, you, sometimes you're going up on a Thursday to play a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and coming back that Sunday with sometimes it's driving, sometimes it's flying. So you add that in the mix and it makes things a lot harder. So um, when are you doing homework? Like literally when are you yeah. doing the time for that in college? I yeah, had that's a- yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It, it's tough. The the homework you have to, especially the classes where you have reading assignments. I, I had a history class one of those years. I think it was my sophomore year, I think. And, and I loved the class. And I, I used to not really like history. I, I love the the wars. I love World War One and two and all that kind of stuff. But I, other than that, I, you know, pre 1700 and 1700 to 1800, I wasn't a big you know, I'd rather take a nap, you know, Um, (laughs) but we had this old fogey teacher uh, and my, my sophomore year in college teaching history. And it was that time period. It was 1700 all the way up to the 1865 was during the uh, industrial revolution or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, dude, he made that thing exciting. I actually liked going to his class and there was a couple of books that he, he assigned us that were like that thick. And (laughs) one was, I think Daniel Boone. And it was, uh, biography on Daniel Boone. I loved it. It was, it was great. So that, you know, those kind of, cl- and that was a fall class. That wasn't definitely not a spring class. I would have been tough in the spring to do that kind of thing. But if you're good with your schooling in college, you can make it work. You can read on the bus, you can do homework in your hotel room. You can do that kind of thing, but not all, not all our baseball guys were good students. Sure. They didn't do their homework. They didn't go to class. So it could be really, really hard for some. So yeah, I was happy with the three, four, three, five, three, six, whatever it was that I graduated at Fresno state, because it's a challenge to be able mm-hmm. to get through that and play a sport full time. I couldn't imagine there's some athletes that do the double sport that'll play football and baseball. And man, I, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Literally probably have no, like, you're just schoolwork is the last thing on your mind at that point. Yeah. Cause you're, you're basically, it's like school's a professional job and playing the sports like its own professional job, yeah. with the amount of hours you have to put in. Right. I, I can't even imagine going back to your college experience. Um, what do you think? Like what, what were, what were like, what was the dynamic like of being on the team? Was there, was there a thing of like cheating or were there any, were people starting to use like testosterone or enhancements Mm -hmm. or was like, what was the, the controversial part or the culture like of college baseball when you were in it? Yeah. Good question. Another one. Um, Yeah. So it was my sophomore year, 
we had an incident where our coach that we had was awesome. He ended up, uh, Bob Bennett, he passed away a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but he won, he was 34 years at Fresno state. I mean, one of the most wow. winningest college coaches, baseball coaches in history, he got inducted into the baseball NCAA coaches hall of fame in 2013, I think, mm-hmm. um, great coach, but I think he was, there was a lot of pressure being put on him by the media. They wanted him out he was getting older. He was in his seventies and, he, he, he was a really good fundraiser and the, the bulldog foundation that, that we have that supports the baseball team raised a lot of money. A lot of people love the program and they stick around, had thousands of, of donors in that program. And softball was a little upset at that because they didn't want to do the work to, to like what he was doing. And, and so there was a lot of like title nine stuff. I understand all that, whatever. Um, but they wanted him out. So we had a, we had an incident, uh, we called it black, black Monday or black, yeah, black Monday, where we had gotten our butts handed to us in Louisiana tech. So they, they came to our place, they kicked our butts and Louisiana tech was like bottom of the barrel, not very good, but they, they beat us up. I don't know. Maybe it was at their, it was at our place. And then, um, so we got our butts handed to us at practice and that was fine. Right. We got our, butt, we got our butts kicked by a weak team. So usually there's punishment involved the next day at practice. We all understand that it's all good. The next, so this next week we're preparing for rice, which ended up that year, I think being, uh, I think we were co-champions or something of our league. Rice was wow. really good. And we go to rice. We, we worked hard. We, we got focused, refocused again after we got spanked on Monday uh, by coach, right. Uh, got refocused. We felt really good going into rice. And then we got our butt handed, butts handed to us against rice. Mm. <laughs> like, uh Oh, and so we're like, Oh, here we go again. Are we going to get uh, smacked again on Monday? Like what we didn't know. And we show up to practice coach was always good about putting the practice schedule up. And, you know, we knew pretty much what we, what we screwed up on in, in the game. We knew we we're going to work on a practice and, I mean, it was things that we had never seen. I had never seen as my second year there. And then juniors and seniors who were there had been there three, four years had never seen. They just put these find the light drill and all these. Di- and we're like, what the hell does this mean? I mean, they're going to smash us. So at that point, the our our senior leaders decided to go against them. So there was a, a little bit of a mutiny that day against wow. the coaches were like, hey, dude, you guys smashed us a week before, uh, which was rightly so was was definitely we definitely needed that. Um, but we got our butts handed to us by one of the better teams. We felt good going into it. We had good practice and you're going to do it to us again. Like, no, like that. We're not going to do that. Right. So we had a couple guys, four guys quit and transferred to other places. It, it was, it was a dark time. It was, wow. I think it really, um, and this, this isn't normal by the sure. way, in, in college baseball, at least not, not that I know of. And a lot of the alumni at Fresno state, they didn't know what the, the details were of that story. And they came up to us, you guys are pussies, you know, they're calling us. They were like, dude, do you even know what happened? Like, right. Like we, and one of the things was they used to say, well, coach Bennett had an open door policy. You could go in there and talk to him about anything. You could shoot the, shoot the S and do all this stuff. And I said, it wasn't like that when we were there, coach Bennett had too much pressure. And I think he, he always had his door closed and you had to knock and, and he was always just more tense, you know? Mm. Um, so so that, so that happened sophomore. And then after that, after the blow up, everything got really good. And I, and I think, uh, we aired it out. We aired each other out. And, and I think we're all understanding. And it, it was like all the pressure out of the balloon just went. Mm. And and now we were all free to, to, to play and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's a different in college. It's, it's different. You, you make bonds in a different way than in high school. And, you yep. know, the guys that we went through it now, even now they'll tell stories because I was a faster guy. I wasn't the fastest guy on the team run uh, speed wise. But yep. one of the things they were that find the light drill, they're going to have us do is they got us all on the line, all on the foul line. And they were going to have us run 
uh, 20 yard wind sprints. And, and we don't know how many we're going to run, but, um, the senior leadership said, okay, what we're going to do is if they're going to put us on the line and make us run wind sprints is to run at the same pace. Everybody we're like, the line is just going to go up and back up and back. So you fast and guys have to run at your pace. Every, yeah, no, 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 not at my pace. I have to slow down and run at their oh. pace. Right. So we have our catcher who's the slowest guy mm-hmm. and we have me, one of the faster guys. And we, and, and we all basically have to run as fast as our catchers. <laughs> so, wow. so we all did that. And, and guess who gets called out? The faster guys. So coach, I think after the third or fourth wind sprint like that, coach, one of the coaches goes, Hey Myers, is that as fast as you can go? And they told us not to say anything. You know, again, I'm a freshman, so I'm a sophomore, so I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, go against a coach. I don't want to, I don't want to lose the respect of my players, you know, my, my, my buddies and stuff. So I'm going to do what they say and not what coach says. So I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say anything. And uh, eventually they just gave up and they said, all right, that's it. And so the coaches went down in the clubhouse and uh, they said, Hey, we want so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so to come down with us. Like our players, our senior leadership to come and talk to them in the clubhouse about what was going on. And it was crazy. I heard, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that room mm-hmm. because I, I heard there was crying. There was all kind of like these guys wouldn't cry, you know, Wow! like the baseball guy, the, the baseball guys, you wouldn't see that. And the coach, I, I don't know if the, I think the coaches were too. It's crazy. Um, but that, but that's, you know, that's the way it is. It's like, we're, we're now in the 18, 19, 20 years old, some of them 21 yep. and we're grown adults. So yeah, I mean, punishment is needed in certain mm-hmm. scenarios, but to continue to pound, 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 right. We got to change you, you. That's insanity, right? You're doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you keep making the same mistake. That's, a, that's a measure of insanity. So we can't do that. We have to figure out a different way. Okay. What's, what's going on here. What's not working and fix it. You know? Mm. Yeah. That's really fascinating. That dynamic and understanding like the threshold or the level of how much punishment is just understanding the scenario and is going to help versus mm-hmm. it's just actually going to build them downward. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting. I wanted to talk from both college and the professional leagues, what are some, what are some of the common injuries or what are some of the, the pain points or issues that athletes in the baseball industry start to see um, develop through their yeah. college and then their professional career? Uh, yeah, good, good question. And the, probably the best examples we have, we had a guy who is my same year, he gets drafted. Let's see, he got drafted his junior year. Uh, which in college that they move the age around, but in college okay. uh, for, for your college junior year after junior year, you can get drafted. So Man. he gets drafted. He pitched. I mean, he, he was one of the more central cornerstones of our team. So he would throw on a, I think he was our Friday night starter. Uh, he was either yeah Friday night starter or Saturday. And if he was our Saturday, then he'd play first base on Friday night. He'd pitch. No, maybe he did pitch on Saturday. He'd uh, play first base on pitch on Friday, first base on Saturday, and then catch on Sunday. So catching is you, the catchers throw the ball second most on the field, right? The pitcher throws the most, right? So poor guy, I mean, did well competed, but I think he had some, he was having some arm issues, his elbow later on and what ended up happening. So he, he was fortunate to get drafted as a sandwich pick in the first round with the A's. So it was right around that Billy Bean Moneyball stuff was going on in 2001. Uh, ben Fritz was, it was funny, in the book Moneyball by Mike, Michael um, Lewis. Uh, ben Fritz's name is mentioned in there. It's kind of cool. Okay. Um, but he gets drafted as a sandwich pick in the first round, which means uh, I think he was like the 31st pick out of 30 teams. But it was because he was a sandwich pick. He was um, uh, sandwiched in with somebody else w- with sure. the A's, you know, how they were doing the negotiation and stuff. Um, so he gets drafted. And then shortly after getting drafted, he gets Tommy John surgery. 
So all that throwing, all that throwing, and he, you know, he blames coach and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you can say no to stuff. He was that good where he could have said, you know what, coach, let me, let me either only pitch this weekend and not catch, or let me only catch and not pitch. You know, I can, I can catch for a couple of days uh, instead of a pitch, you know, I mean, you could do stuff in college. It's tougher for a player like me who I wasn't a complete uh, star to, to really have any leverage, but the stars have leverage. They can do whatever they want. So that's a good example of what, what was going on in, in college is you got these players that, that Tommy John surgeries or whatever, that, that was kind of the main one. And when, when you say Tommy John, could you elaborate on what that means? Yeah. So Tommy John surgery, Tommy John, from my understanding, I think, I don't know if he was the doctor or the pitcher, but they, okay. they name it the surgery after him. And, and what it is, is it, one of the ligaments in the elbow goes, and so what they do is they take and replace with a uh, wrist uh, ligament, and then they replace that in the elbow. And can and, you still pitch once they replace? Oh yeah, them? yeah. Wow. So so the there, there's there's intensive rehab, and it and it's about a year. It takes about a year off after you get in the surgery. So Ben was off for a whole year. He couldn't. He didn't play pro ball that year. I think I don't even know if he did the, the next year. I don't know if he was ready, but it's wow. intensive when it comes to rehabilitation for that arm. But guys come back and they throw almost harder with Tommy John. And the, and the joke was, well, let's just all get Tommy John so we can get reconstructed <laughs> through hard. But it, it wasn't that. It wasn't the thing that the, the ligament that they were putting in there. It okay. was the the rehab. It was the um, all the exercises that they were having you do. That's what was making guys throw harder when they came off. of. I mean, at least that's my that's my opinion on it. Sure, um, sure. But you, you also mentioned, I want, I want to mention the uh, PED stuff. Yeah. Right. So that was right at the end. So McGuire, the Androstein Dion, I think was 98, 99, I think is when he had, you know, the camera there, there, the media's there and they're interviewing him and he's got that Androstein Dion up in his locker room. Right. And that's, yep. that started calling attention to that. Well, in that year, 2000, 2001, we had one guy and I'm not gonna mention his name, but one guy who was a smaller guy and he was a Juco transfer his junior year. He, I mean, he hits a ton, throws hard. I mean, he's really good, really good ball player. Probably didn't need to, to do it, but sure. um, that year he would be flying out to the warning track a lot, fly out, fly out, fly. He'd be pissed and he'd, he'd run down in the clubhouse and we had a, a punching bag down there for guys. So they didn't break stuff, you know, so you can hear him. Boom, boom boom, you know, yelling, 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 because he was popping out too much. And the coaches would be on his case, you know, say, hey, you know, no, we need to get down, get on top of it or whatever. And uh, so the next year he comes out and those same balls that he was just flying out to the warning track were now going all over the fence. So uh, we had, we had an idea stuff was going on. And then later on we figured out and I talked to this individual and other ones and and they were doing some stuff, uh, some legit stuff. And, and I, and I almost did, I had a a good friend on the team who was doing, Mm -hmm. doing that stuff. And is other it rampant stuff in college ball and D one ball specifically uh, it- back then, maybe, I don't is know about her now though, to, to like fake it. I don't I don't know now how the testing is because a lot of times back then they give you a heads up if they were testing. So you, if you had a, <laughs> if you had a, a urine blocker, right, you could take a pill or drink yeah. something and it would block it coming out of your urine. So there was ways around it. But one of my, one of my other buddies who was taking it and I, oh, I came this close to taking Andro and I had done my research. I was reading on it, but I just, you know, the consequences of it, I just didn't, the risk didn't out or the risk, the, the reward didn't outweigh the risk for me. Right. So I, I I decided not to. I didn't take anything. But my buddy, one day, <laughs> I never went into the training room. Okay. I, unless I was hurt. But I, I was rarely hurt. 
And I would never go into the training room to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so my buddy goes, Hey, we got a test today. Do you mind peeing for me? And my buddy, and my buddy's a knucklehead, like he's a yeah. knucklehead, but we were, we were friends and he was kind of my bodyguard ish guy. So I, we'd go out at night and, and he, he's a good big dude. And, and, and he'd always loud mouth, yeah, he you got know, so, back. so if we got in trouble, yeah, he had my six. Yeah. So, so he's you know, a good dude. And, um, yeah, he asked me, he's like, Hey, Hey Joe, I, we, we got a test today. Can you, um, can you pee for me? And I was like, okay. whatever, and they didn't you make know, you whatever pee in front of the official that was, that was uh, no, Nope. They they gave him a, they gave him a cup and he gave it to me. (laughs) I put it in whatever my pocket or or jacket or whatever. And I, and I went in and and I remember our trainer with uh, saw me, he's like, Hey Myers, what's up? I said, Hey, I just got to use the restroom real quick. He's like, okay. (laughs) So here is already tipped off, you know? So I go in and do the thing and um, bring it back to my buddy. And then he gives it and uh, whatever. Uh, so I, I'm sure he had weed uh, that was in there, uh, Andro or whatever else, you know, yep. he had going on. And then the, the trainer came out one day at the practice and said, Hey, Myers, he comes right next to me, uh, kind of singles me out and says, Myers, I know what you did for Pierce. He goes, did you do that? And I was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I had <laughs> to, I can't just tell him, come on, right. dude, what do you, right, you know, right, you're right. going to. So right, uh, anyway, no. but he knew he, he kind of wink, wink. He goes, I know, I know what you did. I know what you did for him, you know? So. Wow. <laughs> and now are the coaches like, like, what's the discretion? Like, how do you handle, how do you handle that as a leader? Like, do you have to bench that person? Do you, is it like, I understand other teams are doing it. So I'm not going to bench my best player just because I know the other teams are like at that point, shouldn't we just allow leagues where people can, if they choose to do that? Like, would, would that be interesting to watch the best athletes performing at their best, even though they are taking enhancers? Well, you know, what's interesting about that. And, and I, there's a lot of people online that will poo poo the PED stuff, you know, bonds and McGuire and all this stuff. And okay. So the, the whole thing with PEDs, whether they're taking steroids or HGH or Andro or whatever, whatever's out there now, it's more about recovery. Of course, these guys get bigger and stronger because you're going to, you're going to recover. Right. So, um, Mm -hmm. I have a, I have a good friend that I used to talk to quite a bit. He was a retired foot doctor and he had a friend who was an Olympic judge. And one day the friend had called him and was really distraught and frustrated. And he was just saying, he's like, man, these, the, the steroids, these Olympians are taking steroids and, Mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, And I, I think what was going on or what is going on, and I think this is still going on in the Olympics, when people get popped for PED use or uh, doping, blood doping or whatever, mm-hmm. I think they're going above and beyond what they should be. And I think it's actually being allowed in the Olympics. And my take on it is, like you just said, shouldn't they just be allowed to take everybody be allowed to right. take? a certain amount, but just don't go over that threshold, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have Olympians, what people don't understand, the the, the armchair uh, couch people out there, right? Armchair quarterbacks. What they don't understand is the Olympic athletes, they train at least eight hours a day for four years, at least. And a lot of them put more work in than that, because that's what you have to do to stay on top of your game. If they're getting steroids or HGH based and prescribed by a doctor, an MD who knows what they're doing, and they're staying under a certain level threshold, I think that's fine. Like you said, shouldn't our athletes be able to recover because your body cannot withstand that kind of abuse. Because when you work out that much, it becomes Mm. abuse, uh, Mm. physical abuse. You're you're just tearing everything down and to be able to build it up, you need things like steroids or HGH or whatever it is in order to be able to 
put that kind of work in. You just can't nutritionally do it on your own, just with nutrition and just basic neutral supplements. Like it, it's not going to work. So my, my view is let them do it. Let everybody do it, but keep it at a a certain threshold, allow the athletes to be able to recover so that we're not seeing these injuries over and over. Right. Mm, Yeah. That I think it would be very fascinating too, right. Just to see world records, the data, all of the understandings we Mm -hmm. have when we can actually Mm -hmm. like Right now, we just basically hide that data. We hide if an athlete's steroids. We don't actually examine, okay, well, what did the trajectory of taking this substance do to their performance yeah. in their career? Which I think would be, it would be so fascinating as yeah. a species to see the biological evolution of when we introduce extensive uh, PEDs like we're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Just like get a, treat it like a research experiment, right? You, yeah. you, you got a question, got a hypothesis, you research, you collect the data and you form a conclusion. And why not have a control group? Maybe have a, a decade where we allow that to happen. People can argue that was the nineties, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 90, uh, 1990 all the way through to, because I think even McGuire in 90, I, he was one of my favorite players. Mm-hmm. And even in, in 90, I heard he was, he was taking it. It was like around that time. And it wasn't until 92, he got really big. And then it was like, Oh, he's taking something now. But uh, Rafael Palmero didn't look like he was taking it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh Hamilton. I, I can't remember if he got popped for it. I know he was drugs, but, um, but some of these guys you go, really? I think right. even Des Pedroia took it at one point. And then all of a sudden, like one year, you know, he looked kind of beefy. Pedroia was a small guy, but he looked kind of beefy and he got the MVP or uh, no more Garcia Parra, one of those guys, real, real wiry guys, small guys, and they were beefy. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff started, people started getting popped for PEDs. And the next season, whoop, they shrink down. They lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds. That's yeah. not normal for an yeah. athlete to lose 20, 30 pounds just like the next year, <laughs> unless they're unless they're big and fat and, and they go in a, a good nutritional plan and training and all that kind of stuff. But for a guy to go from super muscular and lose 20, 30 pounds the next year, yeah, something's going on. Sure. I want to do one more like controversial or more interesting topic, maybe from the more professional league. What is it with pitchers and pine tar and things like that? And what's your thought on that situation? Is that something that like you'll basically never get rid of as long as like you just have to watch the athletes? Is that do you think it's really helping so much to the point where it is extensive cheating? Like where where does that lie as someone who doesn't play baseball? Yeah. So, the, so with all that, the cheating you're talking about, right. And the yeah. Astros and, and the number county number. So there's cheating and then there's cheating, right? Okay. So at that level, you all the, from the pitchers to the hitters, to the fielders, everybody are really, really good. They're all really good. And the guys like Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera and, and some of these guys that are just above and beyond, we call them the top 1% of the 1%. Sure. I mean, that's they're, they're freaks, they're mutants, and they just, they're going to be good regardless, but everybody else, they're all really, really good. So like with Olympic athletes, uh, there was a video that, uh, was a Australian speed bike rider. So they, they have that track, that indoor track. That's like this, you know, it's all yeah, 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 yeah. like this, right. And, and it's so as they fast. Can so fast. And there was a video interview that I watched on him and and they were interviewing him and asking him about his training and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, let me put my training into perspective for the Olympics. He said, we're all really good. All of us. He said, you have to push your training to even, even farther. So he goes, there's often times where I blackout because I'm going so hard or I throw up and puke, puke my guts up. That's how hard these guys are pushing themselves. So when you ask is, is putting pine tar, um, or, you know, getting, getting, um, what is it? Yeah. You like a pine tar on the ball or yep. to tell, make their fingers a little bit more sticky, grippy. Right. Yeah. So that could give them enough of an edge when it's 
sweltering outside, super humid, that kind of thing where your hands are so wet and you use the pine tar that, or that's why the resin's there. Right. So you can mm-hmm. powder and it dries up the moisture, but pine tar is going to, you won't have to worry about really doing that because the pine tar is sticky. So you got it. Um, a lot of times in college, we'd get a brand new ball and the pitcher would scuff the, the seams a little bit scuff the seam. So what happens is if you've got a little, if you've got a few seams that are sticking up out of the the sphere of the ball, that's going to, that's going to catch the air a little bit, add a little bit more dip and drive to their, to the breaking stuff. Right. So it's getting so specific. I love how, how specified that is. Oh yeah. No, again, it's at that level, right? It's, it's the Australian speed, speed uh, bike rider, right? It's, it's that where you're just that little bit that can make Mm -hmm. a difference. Now, if we bring in the Astros, now I'm pissed at the Astros. So there's sign stealing in baseball and, and that, and that's all good. And it's sign stealing with this, right? If you're able to look at the coach and decode what the coach is signing to the players, or you're able to see based on the catcher, giving his signs to the pitcher, yeah, and you're yeah, able to help. look at the forearm and what, the, what the fit, what fingers are being used, dude, that's your brain. You got it. Give that away. Your guys deserve uh, with that kind of decoding skill, they they deserve to get that information and and it, that drives the other team once they figure it out they gotta they gotta fix that but now that's okay I love that part hold on I have a real quick question on that <laughs> I yeah. know this seems maybe crazy but do you think there's teams that have scouts that just watch the coaches and try and take yeah. photos and videos and then go back to the office and try and analyze what each of oh yeah means? oh yeah. Wow, so, so, so now here's just got this sport just turned into chess for me. <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's what the normal, the, the person that doesn't, isn't in it doesn't see, right. See that part right. of it. Well, remember, right, right, remember right. Bill Belichick, remember all the, yep. what did they call it? The, uh, what was, it was, um, football gate. They called it the, uh, the inflate gate, the balls. Yeah, inflate, yeah, yeah, gate. Yeah. inflate gate, right. So that was, that was part of, that was part of it. Again, that's another competitive advantage. If you're, if you're using only inflated balls for your team, but then give the other team deflated balls. I mean, that's, that's, that could be a difference in the game. You want even, even, but that's up to the other team to figure that out and to put a stop to it. You can't just keep playing. Hey, this ball's a little deflated. And you go like three quarter, three quarters, like two quarters like that. That's your fault. Like you should have figured that out. But see, they what they were also doing, the Patriots and Belichick, was they were doing what you just said they were doing, and they got in trouble for it. They were filming the other team, their signs, and they were decoding all that stuff. Now, that's kind of in the gray area for me if you're going to film and take pictures, because now that's going away from your brain. Now you're taking, you're taking mm-hmm. your normal skill of, of live right now, and now you're taking it and you're taking it in a back room, and you're now you're really trying to... In real time, if you can steal, if you can steal stuff, hey, I'm I'm good with that, and and that's mm-hmm. my fault. If I let that go on too long, that's my fault. Like if if we have a player, uh, like say a guy on second <clears throat> second base, a runner on second base, and I'm I'm in center field, so I'm I'm watching my pitcher throw, and I see this runner on second base every time there's a fastball, he's standing straight up before he leads off, and then when there's a curveball, breaking ball, he's putting his hands, he's bending over, putting his hands on his thighs. We're gonna throw one under that guy's chin. Because he's looking and reading our catcher's signs because he's got a good advantage point from that. Now, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say he's a cheater and you couldn't. That's my fault. Like I saw he's that. He's just wise at that point. He's wise. And so I see that in center field. And so I tell, I, I time out. I go to my pitcher. I tell him what's going on. I don't point the guy out. I just say, hey, this is what this guy's doing. Make sure you're. You, is that what's happening go- during those pauses? 
They're just yeah. talking about strategy. Sometimes, sometimes. Wow. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. that's why when you see catchers, they'll go away from these signs when there's a runner mm. on second and they'll go to more of the, like a coaching third base sign. That's why they do that because they're, they're using indicators and they're using different stuff. Yeah. Dude, that's <laughs> so fucking cool. I'm sorry. Exactly. That is so unique. That's, I love that. That just takes well, it to another level. And, and here's, and, and I'll, I'll button this thing up and here's where the Astros went too far. Okay. All right. We're talking about video uh, images, you know, that's gray area for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can understand the cheating involved. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't choose to do that. I'd use my brain, right? right? The Astros went way too far with it. And I feel, I personally feel like their ring should have been stripped from them. Nobody should have wow. won that year. Nobody should have won that year. You don't give the ring to the Dodgers either, right? right. Because they didn't earn it. Um, but that, that year is a non-year and, and it brings attention to that year. And, and the people will go, well, why didn't anybody, why didn't we have a championship that year? And then that starts a dialogue. Well, this is what the Astros did. So they were banging trash cans and all this kind of stuff to, to give the signs, but where they went too far was they had a computer algorithm that was, they had the cameras that, that you're talking about. They had the cameras that were spying on the catcher that were spying on the coach. And then they had computer algorithms that were in real time crunching the, all that data and all that stuff. And it would say, all right, 90% uh, sure this is a fastball is coming. Uh, 95% sure is curveball is coming. And it was taking the count into account, into account. Oh. It was doing all. So dude, you're using an AI, you're using yeah, yeah, yeah. AI to. Yeah, now you're using mathematics to that, really exceed an advantage. That is a no, no, that is no, no. So yeah. I, that's like why I believe. You're saying it's like almost as if there's a, there's a difference between humanistic advantage and the ability Mm -hmm. a person has to just push themselves, their observation, their physical need versus a technical advantage, like a physically, I am manipulating the actual activity that we're doing to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I want to talk about your book a little bit, uh, the catapult loading system. Could you maybe talk about sort of the impetus that led you to want to create that book and maybe what is the overall bigger picture message as an athlete from the book, but then is there a message as a non-athlete that I could really pull from mm. the book? Yeah. So I think the big the reason why I wrote that book was because a lot of the hitters I was working with in going to the science side of things. So we say we apply human movement principles that are validated by science to hitting a ball. So as we started working with hitters, they started having some interesting success and performance. So we would have hitters that weighed 67 pounds that were hitting the ball 180 feet. No which kidding. is almost tripling their body weight and batter ball distance. Right. And then right. we'd have hitters that were hundred pounds hitting the ball 300 plus feet. Uh, and then we'd have hitters that were 115 to 135 pounds that were hitting the ball almost 400 feet. So we were having, and this is baseball softballs around because the ball's bigger and heavier about two sure. times body weight is, is, is pretty uh, two and a half, two times body weight. Yeah. Is what we, we do with our stuff. So I wrote the book because I was seeing all this stuff going on. And then it wasn't until really the coaches were reteaching what I was teaching that I was like, Whoa, we got something here. So that's, that, that's where the book came from. And from athletes, it's just the idea that you don't have to be a big, big person to be good. I mean, Jose Altuve, I know he was part of the whole Astros thing, but he he was good. He's got most of mechanically sound with his swing. And, um, you know, he's five, four, five, 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 six, whatever he is. And he does, he does well, even, you know, take, take, take all that stuff out. He's still going to do well. And he's still playing big league ball. He still can hit the ball over the fence, 370, 380, 400 feet. Um, so, and then a non and a non-athlete taking out of that, I think it's just the, the idea or the lesson that 
what's what is effective, what is working effectively, and what what is working efficiently, right? Effectiveness is working on the right things, and efficiency is is doing those things right. And a lot of people in life, I think, they focus more on efficiency. I need to do this really well, so I need to do it over and over and over and over. But but who's to say that what you're doing is the right thing? Is is the thing that you should be focusing on? So th- that's what catapult loading systems all about. It's taking the things that are most effective, and then being efficient at doing those things. You know, it's really it's really interesting you bring that point up. I saw that for me in college. My thing was I, I really I started picking up towards my junior senior year was bouldering and indoor mm. top rope climbing. And it was the same thing. I started picking up yoga in my personal Mm -hmm. life. And I found that my enhancement of just understanding my body and focusing so heavily on the um, calisthenics around yoga was advancing Mm -hmm. my ability to boulder. So instead of having to spend a shit ton of time on the wall, tiring my forearms, if I'm not Mm -hmm. getting a move or a position, I am able to at home try and mimic or replicate or put myself in a similar position where I'm going to engage the muscle groups. And then I found that my endurance when I went back to the wall was just tenfold. Just yeah, think, well, think about a car, right? If you're, if your car or your front front ends misaligned and you go to buy brand new tires and the, the tire guy says, well, you'll get, you know, Chad, you'll get uh 80,000 miles on these tires, but if your front ends misaligned, then, and you get your tires this way, you're going to get 40,000 miles on that, on the, on the tires. Right. You know, hundred <laughs> percent. I wanted to talk about, so I know with like with our hips, some people's they're, they, 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 uh, rotate interiorly and some people's like they rotate exteriorly. And mm-hmm. so like that, for example, when we're squatting, uh, mine mm-hmm. rotate, uh, externally, I believe. So it's easier for me to squat with my feet out wide. I just get mm-hmm. more mobility and motion rather than my feet par- like straightforward parallel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any of those types of, uh, body and bone mechanics that affect, um, hitting and baseball? Oh yeah. So ankle ankle. Uh, so one of the reasons maybe why you're, you have to go ankles or toes out more, um, is because maybe your ankles are a little tight or maybe there's, um, I do have flat feet. That could be definitely, could be part of it too. And, and I've said, I, uh, I've heard, or I did a a while back, I was dealing with an inside knee issue and that's what I was told too, that I got flat feet. Um, and flat feet is just the arch of your foot is, is more low to the ground. Right. Yeah. So that could be why, and, and that could also lead to the ankle immobility. So there, that's a big part of what I teach with my hitters. So what I say is move better, perform better. Um, and so if, if we have an ankle mobility issue, some players have that, I would say probably about 40% of my hitters online and, and locally will have some sort of an ankle mobility issue. So we have certain, um, exercises that will, um, it's MAT. So it's muscular activation technique is what it's called. So if you looked up like MAT really cool, and it's all based on isometric contraction. Cool. And, um, it's to activate a, a certain, the muscles surrounding a joint. So a lot of times, because we sit so much because of injuries, because of different things, there's certain muscles that turn off when those muscles turn off, uh, one side becomes inactive. The other one becomes overactive to, to compensate at the joint. And so over and over and over, you keep pounding, 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 like you're talking about bouldering and, and, and wall climbing and stuff. Um, yeah, you you get tired faster than if you're, you have some mobility issues or stability issues, right? If you, if your core is not strong, you're going to get tired super quick because you have to compensate and you have to move a different way than actually being lined up and being in a good solid position. So yeah, ankles, the big ones, like our, our priorities are hip mobility is number one. We got to make sure hip mobility is the first thing that we attack. 
uh, being baseball overhand throwing sport, uh, shoulder mobility is big too. Mm-hmm. Got to make sure that we hit both of those joint capsules. Those are both similar joint capsules, like shoulder and the hip. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start to go into core stability, uh, what's called rotary stability. Rotary is, um, your braking system basically. Mm-hmm. So we call it the braking system. Um, and then, then you can go into like the big movements. Like you talk about cleaning up your squat, cleaning up your lunge, uh, cleaning up your step, your stepping pattern, um, kind of thing. So yeah, interesting when you, when you start to get somebody moving better, they end up performing better, whatever that is, you know, whatever so they're fascinating. doing. Yeah. How difficult or how could you talk maybe a little bit about the dynamic of coaching a hitter online? That when you said that, I immediately mm-hmm. had a question like, wow, I can't imagine. Like, do you just watch their footage of them or like, are mm-hmm. they live on Zoom and then they're just enough of the shots in camera? Like, how do you how do you operate that? That's super cool. Yeah, no, uh, it is. It's, it's actually pretty amazing. We started back in 2014, 14, I think. And what we do is so some coaches will do the Zoom thing and, and just say, hey, you know, have the camera there and you do their swings. And I'm, I'm not that way because. I want my, my parent to give me video so that I can slow it down and I can do different things to it on my own. Yep. So they'll send me video. I'll pull it into my video analysis software and then I'll do like a 15 to 20 minute video and it'll analyze it'll, what I like to do is I call it the pat and the pop method, the pat on the back and the, and the pop in the mouth. Right. So (laughs) the pat on the back is what they're doing. Right. So what we'll do is if it's after the first lesson, because the first lesson, I don't have a a bit before video of them. Right. So on the second lesson, we'll take the first lesson and the, and the, the, the first video and the second video, and we'll compare and see how they did in between with the work that they put in on the drills that I prescribed them from That's the, cool. from the previous video. So then we compare and contrast and we say, Hey, looks like, Hey, Johnny, looks like you, you did really well uh, with these two things, but this one thing that I prescribed, uh, we need to work a little bit more on and I'll prescribe them not only drills, like two, three drills or so mm-hmm. for them to do. If they're uh, confused about the drills, they can either text me a video or email me a video say, Hey coach, what do you think? Am I doing this correctly? So drill checks, we call them. And then um, we give them movement stuff. So like I said, if they got an ankle, if it looks like they got an ankle thing or they got a a core stability issue, we send them those exercises. And I tell them they seem simple, the exercises, but you got to understand it's going to help you to download the information of what we're, we're trying to accomplish on the swing. So yeah, it's, and it's crazy because my, my online will say, or my, my locals like you, they'll have the same reaction. They'll go, Whoa, is that even effective? Can you, can you actually, are you seeing gains? And I said, yeah. And I said, one of the big things they get that you don't get now, obviously they don't get the personal me being there and, and doing that. I mean, that's, well, they that's can go the, back and watch the footage. One yeah. Time. Yeah. And that's the thing. So I, they can keep watching the footage. They can keep watching the drill video, making sure they can send me the drill check just to make sure they're doing it right. And they get the exercises. So we do my local guys and gals, they do a certain routine. It's called a signal six routine, which is all that MAT stuff. So they do that on their own. It should only take them like four to six minutes a day. Um, not, they don't always do that, but I'm, I, I don't go in depth with each of them. Cause I work in small private groups. So I have three to four hitters in a group. And a lot of times we'll do five groups in a day. So I'm not working necessarily one-on-one with all of them. So I can't say, Hey, do this exercise that, that, and the other thing. It's mostly just trying to get their hitting work done, but online, I, I send them the exercises. They have video, they have links to the videos and the whole thing. So they have a whole, we call it marching orders. It's a one pager and they got their exercises in there. They got their drills in there. They got and the video analysis link. So awesome. it's, um, it, yeah. So they're, they're, they're making gains. 
That's impressive, Joey. How long did it take you before you really were able to build a business model out of what you were doing and sort of come into your own as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So 2008, I started doing search engine optimization and content, and that was swingsmarter.com, which isn't around anymore. Um, And so I started doing the content, the SEO, and that was really, that was it. And then in 2013, I think, or 14, I rebranded as hittingperformancelab.com. That's when I started to run into all this new physics, biomechanics, spinal engine stuff, you know, all this stuff. I started to, a lot of my research was starting to accumulate. And I was like, oh my gosh, we can really reverse engineer the swing now. And it's definitely wasn't what I was teaching over at swingsmarter.com. So I just, I, instead of going and changing everything at swing smarter, I just rebranded and, and just Smart. redid it. So it took, I was doubling revenues every year. You know, it started off first year was like 7,500 and then it was like 20,000 the next year, like revenue wise coming in. And it wasn't until 2000. So I started to advertise on Facebook in 2015 and I had a email list that was around 3,500 that, that I would add some, lose some, add some, lose some it really wasn't with the SEO. I wasn't making big gains. And then at that time when Facebook was more organic and you can grow organically and you didn't have to pay to play, although if you paid to play, you paid ads and stuff, you got more out of it. Um, that first year I went from three thirty five hundred, and, and again, we're talking about a four month span, right? Cause baseball season is about four months. So it wasn't a full year. So I went from about 3,500 stale emails all the way up to about 12 or 13,000 wow. advertised on Facebook. And then the next year it doubled again. So it was like 25,000. Then it was like 40, 50,000. And so to date, I mean, I have a lot of unsubscribes, you know, did a lot of list hygiene and cleaned up my list and stuff. So I, I have about 34,000 now, but of all this unsubscribes and all, I mean, I've had over a hundred thousand emails that I've gotten from Facebook. It's crazy. Yeah. So it just, and then the book. So that was one big accelerator. And then when I did the catapult loading system book in 2017, uh, that whole year in 2018, it tripled what I was doing, wow. like my revenues. Yeah. So that was another big, big accelerator. Cause at the time writing a book and getting it published, wasn't as easy as it is now. I mean, the hardest part of writing a book is writing a book, but the, to get it, to get it published and to get it marketed. I mean, it's not as, not as hard Did you have a anymore. publisher at the time when you went, when you uh, publish it? I just, I just self-published. I just wow, went on K- yeah. K- Kindle distribution, uh, KDP uh, publishing or whatever it was. Yeah. And it's super simple. You don't really need a publisher unless unless you have no clue about marketing, a publisher is really good about, but they'll take, they'll take more for that. They'll take more of the, of the pot, but KDP, uh, Kindle distribution publishing, it's, it's good. It's a good, you get a good chunk, uh, to you than that would normally go to that publisher. Mm. I want to ask a a more personal question that I think maybe a lot of athletes face, or maybe they don't face. Is there a period in time your senior year of college when you realize, you know, Hey, I don't think I am going to play pro ball anymore. I'm like that bridging transition period of loving the art form and the sport because you play it and then figuring out what your new attachment to this activity is because you no longer do it as the number one fully being competitive thing that drives your life. How is that? Is there like a PTSD or a postmortem mm. feeling that comes to an athlete when they when they stop playing at that competitive level? And how do you, how did you deal with that if you did have to deal with that? And how do you mm-hmm. think in general athletes face those periods or what do they feel when they are in that moment? Yeah, well, I think most college athletes are faced with that because the reality of playing professional ball is is a small percentage of college, even D one athletes. So um, most are faced with that. For me, I think the first the first knock on the door was that sophomore year when we had that fallout with the team and the coach and all that stuff, the black Monday. 
that was the first time it really sunk in. It was like, cause some of the guys were questioning, you know, I don't know if I should even keep playing ball or uh, should I leave and go someplace else? And if I do that, what should I do? And I'm a junior. I only got one and a half more years left. And should, is that even a smart move? And so it got me thinking about that at the time I wasn't thinking about quitting or even leaving. I was going to stay, but that was kind of the first thing got me thinking. And then uh, my, my junior year, the next year had a, had a, had a decent year, uh, struggled a little bit early and finished really strong. And it started to get me thinking, okay, junior year, usually guys get drafted. And I was mentioned and Ben Fritz got drafted sandwich pick with the A's that year. So then it's yep. got you thinking, okay, my, I'm obviously not, nobody's on my tail. So I'm, you know, going to my senior year, we're going to have a coaching change that I knew because coach Bennett was going to retire and we're going to have a new coach coming in. And I was like, you know what, we'll do it. Learn something new and figure it out. And, and that year was just a roller coaster. The last one more mentally draining than physically with the new coach. Um, yeah. And that's, that's another talk for another day, but it got me thinking about, I was a criminology major a graduate. I was law enforcement and I thought about maybe going FBI or CIA Hell yeah! and uh, yeah, would have been kind of cool. A lot of the CSI stuff was going on and, and whatnot at that time on, on TV. Right. Um, and I had the opportunity to do an internship, six month internship. Cause I had to, to graduate with a white collar FBI unit here in, in Fresno. And wow. I interviewed and I, I was stoked, but at the time I was starting to get the entrepreneurial bug and I wanted to that summer go and get my real estate license, want to start doing some investment real estate and that kind of stuff. And that, that was really the time where I was like, do I want to do what my, my major is? And then my twenties were just full of, I call it throwing spaghetti on the wall in the entrepreneurial yep. side. So we're selling stuff on eBay. We were doing real estate investing. We were, I, uh, I think I was, I was starting to fitness train people. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was trying everything. I think we even started a window coverings business at one point. Uh, okay. I mean, it was, I knew nothing about window yeah. coverings, you know? So it, it was good. I mean, I don't, I don't, by any means wish that I didn't go through all that. Cause you, you have to go through all that to really get to where you are now, but you probably, um, learned, you probably learned so much more in those periods of the spaghetti yeah, time than yeah. in, the, in the up moments. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that, so that's pretty much what happened. It was my, my twenties were the transition period, really trying to figure out what it was that was going to work. It was like, when we talked about early on in my childhood, you play all kinds of different sports to see what sports you're going to like. So yeah. it was a, kind of the same thing, trying different flavors of ice cream until you finally settled on, which I did was, was fitness training clients and was the baseball, uh, softball hitting lessons. And so I just decided, I said, you know, I'm going to throw everything else away and I'm just going to focus on these things in my thirties. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. See, and the nice thing too, is, is you found a way to take your love, your passion and transform it to being a part of your life in such a new dynamic, which is, that's so cool. And I think that's something too, that like, people need to understand more or could understand more is like, just because you love something doesn't mean you have to do it. There's ways to still be a part of that world and be um, encouraging and, and teaching and being in it in some form or facet. And uh, I definitely think you've done that and done that for yourself. I want to ask, cause we are getting to the end of our time here. Um, yeah. Some more personalized questions for you. Like uh, for example, what do you define as love? Mm, good question. So I think if anything that this last year, two years taught us, I think love is for, for me is family. 
And my wife was, was working at, uh, she's at a Fresno city college and she's a, she's a counselor there. And so she was awesome. working, you know, eight hours every day, Monday through Friday. And she was sent home and had to work from home for the, this whole time. And, and I, I, I tell her every day, I said, I think our marriage got better <laughs> when you came home, you know, some marriages didn't do so well during this right. whole thing. You know, it's all the fighting stuff just got turned up. Yep. And I feel bad for those families, but I feel like we got better because we got closer. We went on vacations. We went through all this together. And our, our two kids, uh, Noah and Grayson that I mentioned earlier, they got better together because they only had each other because wow. of all the isolation stuff in the beginning. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think love is family. I think, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And so God is, God is my thing and God is yeah. love type of deal. And then, and after God is family. And, and if you got that, I think you're less unhappy because there's a lot of unhappy people, it seems. Yes. And I, I think if they just had a little bit more love in their life, uh, if it's music, if it's, I mean, it doesn't have, they don't have to be Christians. They don't have to be uh, God fearing or whatever, but you know, something that is healthy in their life, if they can, if it's, if it's a fan, if it's family, uh, everybody's got some sort of family, but not everybody's in a good situation with their family, but something that they love that is good, not mm like alcohol or, you know, those kind of loves are not good, uh, but good things that are good that, that they can love, um, not worship, not worship, but love, right. That, that they can, I think you, I think you're much more happy, uh, in life. I like that. I like that. What do you believe and define as the meaning of life? Hmm. I probably going on that. I think it's to, I think it's relationship. So it kind of goes with the family thing. Uh, but I think relationships, everything, I think it, it permeates business. It permeates family, friends, uh, spiritual. I think if we had more of a relationship focus and uh, listening a little bit more, being a little bit more understanding, it's just been tough the last couple of years to, and I haven't said the, the nicest thing sometimes. And uh, some of my friends haven't. And I think that, if we keep the relationships, at least that are worth keeping. I know there's some relationships that were just hanging on. And then this last two years just showed you the people that you probably don't need to be hanging around with, but you knew that before it would just took this whole virus thing to (laughs) to tell you exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, but I think, I think relationship and, and hang, put more time on hanging out with people. Mm. It's hard when you're in the the heat of battle, like you talked about a couple of the businesses that you're, you're involved with in the podcast. Mm. It's hard because yeah, you can put in 14 hours in the business and you can do more. And you, especially if you're being effective with your time, you can do, do a lot, but you have to think about, okay, I have to weigh the the risk and reward with that. Are you going to lose your family over that? Because everybody hears story, you know, they read stories. Uh, uh, you know, I read Warren Buffett's biography and Steve Jobs and these guys and gals that are super, super hyper focused on what it is that they were really good at. And what people in the end in the book, you know, they 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 grandiose this whole thing. Yeah, look at what Bill Gates did and blah 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 blah. And they said, oh yeah. And then he lost his family. Uh, but right. yeah, this is really good. You know, it's like, it's like, well, wait a minute. Like Warren Buffett had a, I think he had a mistress, you know, and a live-in mistress and the wife was living there and the mistress and the whole, it's like, well, okay. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, again, I'm Christian. That's for some people. That's not, right. that's not what I No, But I, I get what you're saying. It's like, we all have, we all have buckets in our life. Mm-hmm. And if we spend too much time filling one bucket, but not balancing the buckets we're yeah. filling, yep. it, it it can eat away at our existence. Like I, I'm sure too, like 
that I think that's one thing too, that people don't get a lot. And like, I even, I had to realize that too, is I was pushing my partner away because I was saying, Oh, work is more important. Work is, I gotta, Mm -hmm. I gotta be getting the hours in, but I didn't realize that the mechanism was a fear of being able to provide because a love language of mine was security for my partner. Exactly. my ability, my inability to just see the ignorance in my perspective on the topic and be able to reflect on that and pull myself back and take a look mm-hmm. and say, Hey, balance is key to life. I think mm-hmm. that's definitely something that's super important and something I definitely highlighted with what you just shared there. Yeah. hundred percent agree. hundred percent agree. Yeah. I wanted to ask too, um, what are some of your personal principles that guide your life now in your forties? Um, I'm sure you've had plenty of time to to think and deliberately figure out how and who you are and why you are the way you are. So mm-hmm. I'd just be curious to maybe understand some of the, some of the bigger principles or maybe one of them that really, really guides and controls your life. And I understand that faith is probably at the top of that, mm-hmm. um, but maybe if you had to break down what you're doing inside of that faith as yep. key characteristics for it. Yeah. I got a couple of really good ones that again, over these last two years, uh, everything in the last two years, I think for most people out there has really solidified and, and not solidified where they're at or what they believe or anything like that, but just more of what they need to do with their life. Right. Some people got rid of jobs that, that they knew that or or like you said, partners got rid of partners or friends that they just didn't realize. And a couple of the things that I've really come to realize the last really the last six months is um, critical thinking. Number one is is a, is a big deal. And I know everybody's got different definitions of critical thinking um, with with our kids. A good example is we train we, we kind of train them in a way. Uh, it's mostly me. My wife doesn't. Uh, but I was brought up this way. My dad did this to me. My dad's happy go lucky. My mom was referred to as the war department, which, uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's how it was in our household. But my dad always joked around with us and he would say he would kid with us a lot. And what we do with our kids is I'll, I'll tell, we'll be walking, maybe we're going to get ice cream or something. There's a car driving by and I'll say, Hey, look at that green car. Look at how beautiful that green sheen is. And, and they'll both look at the car and they'll go, dad, the car's white. Right. <laughs> so what I do is I, on purpose, will say something wrong to see if they're, see if they're sent. So I, I do different scenarios That's like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the critical thinking, right. So I want them and I, and I tell them, I say, question everything because they're, they're into the YouTube and, and whatnot. And they'll come to me or mom with a fact and I'll, and, and, and I'll say, it doesn't really sound right. And I'll say, you sure that's right. right. Um, and, and so I want that. I say, question everything, even question your parents that's because smart. both, both their mom and me, and me, we're secure in, in our knowledge and we're always learning, but right. we're secure in our knowledge that you can question us and we'll tell you, we'll give you the logic and the rationale and all that kind of stuff to back up what it is, the decision that we're making. Right. So critical thinking is number one. Number two is courage. So whatever that looks like in, in anybody's life, courage uh, to be able to, to stand up for what you have to, to say. And we see that in different ways. We see that on far one side, far another side, but also in that middle, I encourage people in the middle to speak up. Like we don't want to just hear this side and we don't want to just hear this side. We want to hear what's going on here. And what happens is these two are really, really loud. And then, and these, these ones are really, really, they're really low mouse voices. And I want to hear what they have to say. Like it, we would get, we probably wouldn't be in the predicament we're in if we were out here all the time. Right. right. If we had these people in here conversing, these people would actually probably get more drowned out than 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 these. Right. So courage, courage is the other critical thinking, courage. And the other one that's kind of similar to critical thinking is discernment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, discernment's been a big one because I feel that we're in an information war. 
And I feel like you have, I don't know if you remember that show spy versus spy. He had a, it was, yeah, I think yeah, it was a cartoon, yeah. right? The black and white. Right. Yep. And so you have, you have the good guy side, you have bad guys and good guys. And then on the bad guy side, you have bad guys and good guys. Right. So, so how do you, how do you differentiate between Dr. A who says this and Dr. B who says the exact opposite? Right. right. And I think, I think discernment is a big one and it is not easy by any means. Critical thinking is not easy by any means. Um, so you have to use brain power. And, and I think people, I think all of us have gotten lazy with our critical thinking and our discernment over the decades, right. In our life, we've gotten yeah. so lazy that that brain has got that part of our brain has gotten so flabby that I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't come close to a nervous breakdown in the middle of this mm. thing, but it was getting there. Right. And mm. I know some people did, some people had nervous breakdowns because their brain goes crazy because they don't know how to take that, that and figure out which is right. Or right. is one right. Or are both right. Is there a piece? And, and so I feel better. I I'm still, we're still in the middle of this thing. Um, but I feel better. Uh, at least I feel stronger in those, in those senses to, to be able to do that. But critical thinking, courage and discernment are my, my big three. Mm, those are fantastic principles to, to guide your life through. And I, I agree. <laughs> I wanted to, when you were doing, when you were doing the whole idea about the, the far of one side and the far of the other, mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing about that is, is social media from my perspective being, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. younger, I'm in my twenties. Yep. I see social media did one thing. It turned us into a experience economy, which then requires the no ability to do something long-term. We can't sit down and watch a long movie anymore. Everything has mm -hmm. to be short. And so yep. once we shorten everything and then you hear a far this and a far that, mm -hmm. you don't start to use the most important thing, which I think is what you were talking about in the middle. And that's nuance. Uh -huh. Every single conversation, <laughs> every topic we talk about, whether it's love, whether it's sports, whether it's mm -hmm. the science or the news, everything has nuance. And mm -hmm. if we just spent more time as a society and as people just relaxing into the idea that, you know what? There's going to be nuance and we have to use critical thinking to find yeah. and, and discern that context. A hundred percent. It's mm -hmm. super, super key. I think that's a super great point. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to ask, um, I know this might be very, very personal and I, you don't have to share if you don't want to, but what is maybe one of the, the biggest fears in your life um, that you deal with and that, and how do you overcome it or face it um, in your life? Yeah. Uh, another good question. The, the probably the biggest fear you mentioned one for you is the security, right? Being able to provide yep. for your partner. And, and that's, that's always a big one. And I'm, I'm lucky that now I'm at a point where I'm not, I'm not putting in a neutral by any means, but I'm looking to break beyond where, where I have got myself and trying to get outside of that. So, uh, security is probably a big one. I think when I was building my business, it was hard because my wife had no clue. I mean, her dad, he ran a flower shop for 14 years on his own. Wow. And uh, when he retired or shut the flower shop down, he worked for a gal who owns a flower shop and he just works for her now. So she understood the, her dad running his own business and the, but her mom didn't really like that. She wanted him to work for somebody because of the stability and all that kind of stuff. So she heard mm. her mom always kind of this way. And, and, and she, her mom and dad have a great relationship. They're still married and all that stuff, but she heard her mom complaining a lot about the business and that they couldn't uh, the, go on vacation dating an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. And, and so my wife, early on when building the business, I mean, we're not making much 20,000 a year, you know, that's just revenue. That's not, that's not take home, right? That's, that's not living expenses. That's, that's not, not living. That's not diapers. Yeah. So she, she's, you know, mentioned many times, why don't you just go work for like FedEx or UPS or to like get a job, you know, that kind of thing. And so that makes, that makes it really tough mm. to do. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years later when we started doing 
uh, things started picking up steam where she, she got the idea and she, she figured out, oh, okay, this is a, a decent thing. And, and I just wouldn't have been happy doing that. Yeah. I, I've, I've done the work for other people. I, I've done that summer, like in college doing the summer stuff. And I just wasn't happy. I wasn't yes. happy doing it. And, and so I'm happy doing this. Yeah. And now you're living the life you want to. And yeah. that's like, that's the most important thing too, is like, you know, finding, finding what makes you feel so secure in your ability to wake up every day and, and mm-hmm. to enjoy your faith and to enjoy your love for God and for your family and all that. And so right. it's super, super beautiful. I want to, one final sentiment for the audience. If, if they're old, if they're young and they're listening to this, mm-hmm. if you had one piece of advice that you had to leave for someone, what would that piece of advice be? I would say to, if you're in a moment of chaos, sometimes you have to just, like I, I mentioned, a you're on a raft in the middle of a river and the, and the river is raging and it's taking you down the river and you want you don't want to be going in the direction that that river is going. You want to be going the opposite direction. So you start paddling, you start paddling and, and you keep paddling. You notice that you're not going anywhere. You're still actually going this way. You're just going a little bit slower is sometimes just let the river take you. And don't be so controlling of situations. And I think it's one thing with baseball that, that I was pretty good at, or I feel like I'm pretty good at in chaos is we don't know as a hitter, we don't know what pitch is coming. We don't know the speed or the location. And so we're dealing with a lot of like, we're dealing with probabilities. Basically we're not, we're not Mm -hmm. dealing with certainty. It's uncertainty is what we get a lot of. And I feel like I've done pretty well with that. I feel like I do pretty well with that. Obviously way too much uncertainty is not fun. Like too much anxiety. You need a break. Right. But I, but I feel like I can sit in the middle of that river and I can observe what's going on and I can make adjustments to Mm. that scenario or that environment that I need to do if I need to survive or whatever I can take. Okay. My goal is this, but this just got my way. So, okay, let me just sit in this. Let me figure this out first, move this roadblock and then come around it. So I would just say, if you, if you're in the middle of chaos, you find yourself super anxious, you got to just sit in it and figure out, okay, how can I get around this? How can I get around this obstacle? Uh, again, using discernment, using critical thinking, you know, being courageous and all that. But that's probably my, my one bit of advice. All right. I think that's a fantastic piece of sentiment to leave us off with. Before we finish up our time here, I want to give you an opportunity to plug any any social media, any platforms. Where can people find you? How can they uh, reach out to you? Or how can they hear about your stuff, what you got going on? Cool. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate the time today. It was a good talk. Um, so for those that are interested in the baseball side of things, uh, they can go to hittingperformancelab.com. And if you just social medias, the Facebooks, the Twitters, uh, you know, we're all over that YouTube and all that. For those that are business oriented, uh, we have a search engine optimization agency that we've created. And you can go to lead generation SEO services.com SEO, like search engine optimization, but just SEO services with an S at the end.com. And uh, for those that are interested in, in doing anything like that, again, we're all on those same Facebook, Twitter, and all that. But hey, I appreciate your time, Chad. Yeah, I appreciate you, Joey. I think this conversation has been fantastic. I got to explore baseball in a way that I never have before. And really just your your dynamic, your pace, and also your ability. I can just see through this conversation and just through your life and the way you live it, your ability to strive and to keep pushing forward and to take initiative. It's, it's truly impeccable. And it's something I think that a lot of people can look up to. And uh, I was extremely fortunate to have your time this afternoon for this conversation. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that, Chad. And I hope, I hope that helps. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still learning. I, I don't know everything and I still make mistakes. So don't, don't think that I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not perfect by any means. <laughs> of course, of course. And uh, with that folks, thank you for joining us for another edition of a humanistic perspective. As always enjoy life, work hard, 
and we'll see you later.